Let's pray. Father in heaven, we praise you for our Lord Jesus Christ, the one in whom we rest, the one who is our righteousness in heaven. We love you, Lord Jesus. Come now and do your prophetic work among us. Reveal to us by your word and spirit the will of God for our salvation. Make clear for our hearts and minds, for our lives, that we are sinners, that you are our Savior and King. And would you draw us along in, in this life that we may walk with you always, finding comfort and care in your providence and oversight. We love you, O oh Lord. Come, please, speak to us now in Jesus' name. Amen. Open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2. I'll just remind you before we read that you know, when I'm with you in the mornings, Lord willing, we'll proceed through these seven letters that Jesus dictated to the Apostle John in his vision, visions at the island of Patmos. This morning, the letter to the church in Pergamum. This is the word of the Lord from Revelation chapter 2, beginning in verse 12. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith. Even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Amen. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of our God endures forever. Where do you go for rest? Where do you go seeking comfort. You know, at the end of those long days, where does your mind go to decompress or disconnect? Where, where do you go seeking satisfaction? You know, in, in these ways, the world is a very difficult place to live as a Christian. It's so easy, so easy to seek comfort and rest and satisfaction in the ungodly and, and carnal, temporal things in this world, it's so easy for us to, 
to seek to find our comfort and our hope in, in our circumstances. If I can just get things right in my life, I'll feel better. If I can just forget about this thing that's going on, maybe I'll feel better. Every one of us has within us desires for this type of, of rest and comfort. And we were designed this way with these desires that can only be met by God. He's the only one that can truly fulfill those deep longings of our hearts. But sin has twisted us up inside, hasn't it? We're now, instead of seeking what we ought to seek in Him, we seek it every other place we can possibly think that we'll find it. In every area of our lives, it doesn't take long to think through this, you feel that pull to to be like the world. to, To seek after those things that go against God. You know, in our jobs, we may be told and we may even begin to believe that that money is the most important thing and you really need to get as much of it as you possibly can by doing as little work as you possibly can. Or in your parenting and raising of children, the world tells us and our hearts tug towards it that, that raising children is really about making it all look good on the outside. Just behave. If we're really successful at it, maybe we can even post all of our, of our acclamation on social media to let the rest of the world know how good we are at doing this thing and we can feel like we've attained something. It's mentioned here, it's going on in Pergamum, the sexual immorality that was at play in the life of the Israelites and in the life of this church. You know that sexual immorality is all over the place. Sex has like, a, um, like an ember jumped out of the fireplace. It is set ablaze all over the world, outside of its proper space in a godly biblical marriage. It's become the way we identify everything. And isn't it hard not to lean into that with the rest of the world? It's everywhere. It is so easy in this world to get comfortable with the way things are. It's so easy for us to be satisfied with the way the world is. Because generally speaking, we live in a very privileged place where that we can exist as Christians and nobody's going to bother us. It makes it very easy to lean into the world when we live in a place like that. John told us in 1 John chapter 2, All that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the boastful pride of life, these are not from the Father, but are from the world. He says the world is passing away along with its desires. So it's not just that these things can't satisfy us, it's that they don't last at all. They will never fulfill, they'll always leave us wanting more, they'll always find us empty, and one day they won't exist anymore. The church at Pergamum struggled with worldliness. That desire to find comfort in circumstance. That desire to find the, the rest from a hard day in something that I can see or taste or touch or smell. Something that I can control. And they, 
they got distracted, they fell away from finding their trust and rest in God. And so you see him there identify himself in verse 12, Jesus, the one who has the sharp two-edged sword. He comes to them in this letter with a twofold message. And it's for us here today, too. Um, in the busyness of life, in the temptations of this world, Christian, these are the things that Christ has to say to you. Remain steadfast. Remain steadfast. And repent of worldliness. Remain steadfast. And repent of worldliness. Pergamum was a city built on a hill, quite literally. On a tall hill, this city rested, looked much like a throne, perhaps, from some angles. It's known for its many different temples and places of worship. There was one god who specialized in healing. They would often call him the Savior. Many tourists, or so we would call them, would flock to Pergamum to visit the temple of this god of healing. Zeus had an altar there that was very large and impressive. Pergamum was known as well for being the first place where emperor worship was ordained and a temple erected. It was really a very religious place to live. You know, dinner at your neighbor's would always include a prayer, whether it was to the God that you worshipped or not. Places of worship were located on every corner. Made it rather easy. If you got dissatisfied with a preacher at your temple, you could go find a different one across the street. It was very uncommon for anyone in, in Pergamum to refrain from participating in these cults and, and false religions. Many of the trade guilds had patron gods to whom they prayed and in whose name they labored. So you can begin to imagine that living in Pergamum and being a Christian didn't go very well together. A very hard place to be. The pagan idolatry wasn't just a matter of personal, private practice, right? You have your God and I have mine. No, you may be forced to worship at the feet of a God who, who instituted the, the work that you do from day to day. If you stopped attending the, the, the daily offering to, to Caesar at his temple, it would not go unnoticed. And you, you certainly wouldn't miss your, your company picnic and worship to Zeus. It was everywhere. You couldn't simply be quiet at home and hope that nobody noticed that you worshipped Jesus. Because it was everywhere. It seeped into everything. But beyond that, it wasn't simply that Christians were, were sort of strange because they wouldn't participate in these practices, but they also themselves had very strange practices, don't we? One whole day devoted to worship and rest every week. We go into our worship spaces not, not seeking after drunkenness and sexual immorality, but our, our worship is characterized by order and, and honor and majesty. It's characterized by, by purity and sobriety, something completely contrary to the worship of the world around them. It seems as we read that 
they stood out so much and were so different from the world that the people of Pergamum hated them so much they wouldn't even refrain from murdering some of them. At least one that we know of so far, Antipas, killed because of his faithful testimony of the Lord Jesus Christ. In this very, very difficult situation, what does Jesus have to say? Look at 13. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith. This is what Jesus says. You can look back. Verse 9, verse 2, he comes to his people and he says, I know. I know. I know where you dwell. It's, it's not the same, but it's similar. You know, you're putting your kids to bed at night. You're going to turn out the lights. It's going to become very dark. And they say, don't go. Please stay with me. And you say, I- I'm not going anywhere. I'm going to be on the other side of this door. I'm going to be on the other side of this wall. I'm going to be somewhere still close by. Jesus comes and he says, I, I'm not far away. I know where you dwell. You know, he has harsh things to say to them, but before we get to it, do you notice that they believe him? They trust him. They cling to him. They walk through the valley of the shadow of death and they do not fear evil. Why? Because they believe that Jesus is with them. They hold fast his name. They do not deny the faith. In the words of one of the Psalms, in their affliction, their comfort is God's promises. They knew to whom they belonged. And they were not afraid of death. They held fast. They did not deny the faith even when Antipas was killed. Even when death loomed in front of them for what they had done. You know, the place that we live is a lot like Pergamum. And we have to be careful because too often we can believe that, that living in a place like the one we live in, when we have a church on every corner, we can begin to falsely believe that, that everything's okay and that the world is actually a rather nice place to be. We can begin to believe that we're not exposed to, to the kind of persecution that's described here, that maybe we don't actually face any persecution, that we don't have to worry about the things that Jesus writes about here. But all around us, on the television, on the internet, in our schools, in your jobs, all around us are temples to money and temples to sex and temples to to pride and wickedness. And these false gods persecute you and threaten your life as a believer. This is to say nothing of that deep well of remaining corruption that is in all of God's people still. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. But you know that that tug still exists in your heart, right? It's not just the things on the outside that are so dangerous, but it's what's here in me that's so very dangerous. The Spirit is willing, praise the Lord, 
but the flesh is weak. And we so often forget to pray for strength. Listen, beloved, listen. Jesus knows where you dwell. Jesus knows where you dwell. And if you are not wandering away from him, he commends your steadfastness. He commends your refusal to deny him before the watching world. The place we live is as David described it. We are always walking through the valley of the shadow of death. The world and the flesh and the devil are at every intersection of our lives, aren't they? Always creeping, always waiting, always lying, hoping to grab you in something, but we will not fear. Our God is with us. He is strong and mighty, and he has put death to death in the death of Christ. Our Lord Jesus has won victory. And we can say with Paul, I can charge you with Paul, you must be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. For in the Lord, your labor is not in vain. Do you know this? Do you know that that our trials and our tribulations, that our, our always seeking to continue in steadfast is not in vain? Your circumstances won't always change. You'll continue to read your Bible and you'll continue to pray and you won't always bring circumstantial change to your life. But that's not where true rest lies. True rest is found in Christ and in His Word and in the proclamation of it among the people of God. So continue to pray. And continue to seek God and draw near to Him through His Word. Continue to set apart the Lord's day. Continue to run from greed and impurity and wickedness and lust and pride. The Lord is worthy of all of your pain and diligence in godliness. And He has made you strong and fit for it. So remain steadfast, beloved. Stand strong in the midst of difficulty and trial. Do not doubt that God is here and that He keeps His promises. This was, we may say, one side of his sharp sword, the charge to remain steadfast, and now Jesus cuts the other way. Remain steadfast and repent of worldliness. It's fascinating, isn't it? That Jesus can commend this church so highly in verse 13, and then make such a quick what it seems to us to be. Such a quick turn in verse 14. But we've seen it before. You don't have to look back very far. You can look at the letter to Ephesus at the beginning of chapter 2. The church in Ephesus was commended for their stand against heresy. They were commended for their doctrinal vigilance. They were the good Presbyterians in the group. But what was the thing that Christ chastised them for? Do you remember? They had lost their first love. They were doctrinally vigilant but they had forgotten to love Jesus. And it seems that Pergamum Church has the opposite problem, that they loved Christ unto death. They refused to deny in the face of violence and pain that Jesus was theirs, but 
they failed, it seems, to put heretics out of their company, which led to worldly compromise. They failed to put down these false teachings. Look at 14. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. Verse 15, so also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. There were some in the Pergamum church who had given in to the worldliness around them, that they hold, Jesus describes it as the teachings of Balaam and the teachings of the Nicolaitans. You can go read it this afternoon. It's your afternoon Lord's Day homework. Numbers 22 through 25. Numbers 22 through 25. When the people of God are wandering in the wilderness, Israel is is waiting for that first generation to die off before the Lord will take them into the promised land. They tried to pass through Moab. The king of Moab, Balak or Balak, depending on how you choose to pronounce it, he hated Israel. He refused to let them pass through his land. and He hated them so much, he did more than this. He hired a prophet named Balaam to go and put a curse on Israel. It is rather humorous at a couple of points. When Balaam tries to curse Israel, the Lord actually speaks through him and all that comes out is blessing. This is where we learn about it, actually. Verse 14 seems to indicate that that Balaam is the one who incited King Balak to corrupt the morals of Israel. After Balaam's sort of account in Numbers 22, 23, and 24, you get to Numbers 25 where it, it records that the Israelites compromised with the pagan culture, that they engaged in sacrifices to Baal and sexual immorality with the Moabites in Peor. Verse 14 of our text says, Balaam taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might do those things. It's this, the teaching of Balaam is this inclination toward worldliness. It's this inclination to fit in with the people in the world around you. The Nicolaitans were, were mentioned back in the, the letter to Ephesus as well, they combined worldly ideas and worldly culture with Christian worship called syncretism. They brought it together. These two false teachings, the teachings of Balaam, the teaching of the Nicolaitans, they were finding footholds in the Pergamum church amidst these people that were committed to Christ until death. There was worldly teaching creeping in. And so the professing believers were beginning to compromise with the world. They, they discovered that they might actually find better comfort in their circumstances. That, that if they would just um, participate, maybe participate in that one trade ritual and I can keep my job and take care of my family. Or, or if I will just, if I can just go and participate in emperor worship once in a while... Those, those state officials won't come knocking at my door quite as often. Perhaps maybe they justified it in their own minds and hearts, saying, you know, I, I, 
It's just outside, exterior things. I can go through the motions. It's, it's the, the problem would be if I gave my heart to Caesar, but I'll keep that for Jesus. They probably imagined that they could serve Christ and the world at the same time. You know, we don't want to think about it, right? But you have to think about it. Don't you compromise like this in your own life? Don't you see this crop up? It's not so much that we compromise with the world because we're avoiding danger or death. But often the way of the world has been made so easy for us. So comfortable, so accessible to me. Isn't this what Asaph meant in Psalm 73? He recounts how how the wicked around him in the world are prospering. He says, as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Do you find yourself in that situation? You look around and you think, boy, these wicked people seem to be having so much fun. And they seem so comfortable. And I'm just sort of a fuddy-duddy Christian. It wouldn't matter that much if I engaged in some of these things. There's no such thing as just a little pornography. Or just a little gossip. Or just a little theft. Or just a little greed. Or just a little pride. There's no such thing for God's people. In his book, Respectable Sins, Jerry Bridges writes about looking like the world. He says, the sad fact is that many of us who are believers tend to live our daily lives with little or no thought of God. We may even read our Bibles and pray for a few minutes at the beginning of each day, but then go out into the day's activities and basically live as though God does not exist. He writes, we seldom think of our dependence on God or our responsibilities to Him. We may go for hours with no thought of God at all. And in that sense, he says, we are hardly different from our nice, decent, but unbelieving neighbor. God is not at all in his thoughts and is seldom in ours. You know, are you living your life just trying to get as close to sin as possible while still sort of pretending to be a Christian? That's the cultural Christianity of our day and age. We don't look much different from the world, but we come to church on Sunday mornings. That's not what God is looking for among his people. There is great danger in continuing in compromise like this. Do you see in verse 16? Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. We don't have time to talk about it. One of the primary issues in Pergamum was the lack of church discipline. Jesus says, if you don't discipline your church, I will show up myself and take care of business for you. Do you feel the tension of this letter? This great commendation in verse 13. You are faithful, yet you give in to worldliness. Beloved, which one will you choose? Will you let the tension break 
on the side of the world or on the side of Christ? This, this is the kind of tension that Paul sets up in Galatians chapter 1, where he writes, For am I seeking the approval of men or of God? Am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Do you see him set it up? You can either engage with the world or you can be with Jesus, but you can't have both. You must not compromise with the world. For the Christian, for the Christian, listen, here's the comfort. Always the answer is to repent. Repent. It's the beginning of 16. Therefore, repent. Repentance is this wonderful thing one side of the coin that we call conversion. We believe on Christ and we repent of our sin, but our shorter catechism does a wonderful thing and it explodes the idea of repentance out so we can understand to repent is to see the danger of worldliness. To repent is to see the danger of our sin and of walking away from God. To repent is to see the great mercy of God for you in Christ. You don't deserve to be saved. That apart from him, we're as worldly as they come. But he has come near to us in the person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ. Repentance is to hate your sin and to turn to God in fresh obedience with full endeavor after new obedience. Be thoughtful about your life. Isn't that kind of what they're, they're saying? Be thoughtful about your life. Don't just live the way you live. Think about how you live. Don't let the world get a foothold. Be careful to watch what you do. Be careful to not become comfortable with the ways of this world, which is certainly, definitely passing away. We must train ourselves for godliness. We must train ourselves to enjoy the Lord more than we enjoy the place where he's put us. Find comfort instead in God's worship. Find rest in the gospel. Find satisfaction that you crave in the midst of God's people and the fellowship of believers. Verse 17. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. I'll give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. This is the promise to all who continue to repent. Manna is that miraculous food that God provided for Israel in the wilderness wanderings. Jesus is saying by referencing it that that what God provides is better than what the world has to offer. Some of them were feasting on, on pagan sacrifices. Jesus says manna is better You will be better fed coming to Christ than you are at the tables of these false gods. The reference to the stone there is is not as evident to us. There's a couple of ways you could think about it. The one that I think is probably most suitable here. Back in those days, an athlete or a competitor in some kind of event might receive a stone from the emperor upon his victory. 
The stone would have the emperor's name written on it, and then the emperor would throw a feast for the victors, and the stone would gain you entrance into the feast. The white stone that Jesus provides, we can assume, has his name on it. And with it, we gain entrance into the presence of God. One day, someday, we will leave this world that is passing away, and we will enter into glory, into the very presence of God, and it is the name of Christ that gives us entrance. It is what he has done for us that paves the way. Isn't that feast the one in glory that will never end, where you will be with God and he will be with you forever? Isn't that what our souls really long for? Isn't that the true satisfaction that we're seeking? You know, you look for it in all the wrong places. In the world and in things and in people. But what you crave, that deep longing that God put inside of us when he made us that was marred by sin, the only way it can be met is in the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the only one that can satisfy. It's not just that there's rest and comfort in him either. There's salvation from our sin. So we must repent and believe the gospel. We must repent and turn back to him. I want to add that, you know, if you do know Christ and you find yourself in the place that Pergamum found themselves in where they would name Christ and they may genuinely have a true love of Christ, but they were leaning into the world, doesn't the letter show you that Jesus is not opposed to these people and he's not opposed to you? We fail to follow him, don't we? And we turn our face away from him and we we slink off to sin in the world. Do you know that Jesus never turns his face away from you if you have been brought to know him? That he never slinks away from you? That there's nothing you could do that would make him go away? Repent! And turn back to God. He is waiting for you. Put to death the ways of the world. Come to him, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and he will give you rest. Amen. Father, for the sake of your son, send your spirit to write the truth of your words upon our heart that we may not sin against you. Teach us what it is to repent. Teach us what it is to cling to Jesus. We thank you for him and the salvation that he has brought us. Come and knit us more to him even now, we pray, for his sake. Amen.